And then we're going to look at our response to all of that as Christian believers. Now, Remembrance Sunday, as we now know it, uh, used to be called uh, Armistice Day. Before World War II, it was called Armistice Day. And an armistice occurs when the warring parties decide that enough is enough and hostilities will cease, a permanent ceasefire. So every November the 11th, after 1918, our country uh, had an act of remembrance on the 11th. The end of war. Seven million people had died, but now there was peace. But history tells us that something like 21 years later, there was war again. This time across six years and across a far wider geography. And some 50 to 70 million people died as a result. So just some perspective this morning, that's the entire population of the United Kingdom died in the Second World War. And so because it wasn't just one war anymore, and because that armistice clearly hadn't brought lasting peace, the name was widened and it was changed, and now we have Remembrance Day. So a hundred years on from the original armistice, 70 years on from the end of World War II. The first World War survivors have now all died of old age. And the second World War survivors are also, with respect to them, getting on a little bit too. Now we're honoured to uh, have people known to our church community uh, who served in the Second World War and some who are even here this morning today. What a privilege for us to remember with you. But overall, we are moving beyond the generations who actually experienced those wars firsthand. Now what we have is the memories of those generations, of their sacrifice being passed down through the generations. But of course, since 1945, there's been so much more other conflict. And there's been service that has happened since then in Korea and Northern Ireland, Iraq, Afghanistan and the, Falk- the Falklands being the more recent examples that Britain has directly been involved in. And I know that there are people in this room who've, had, uh, who've served in many of those situations. People who still bear the scars, whether physical or mental, of being involved in such conflict are here with us this morning, part of our church family. And many of us, as we approach remembrance, uh, because of who we are and our background, we approach remembrance from a broadly British perspective. And yet within our church family, we represent many countries. We represent Romania, South Africa, Sierra Leone, Malaysia, China, Germany, Nigeria, Zambia, Ireland, India, and still others through our uh, brothers and sisters who we love having part of our church family from Concord College. We represent some countries who fought with the British. We represent countries who fought against the British. And we represent countries who've done both. But here we are today, one woman, one man in Christ, drawn together in wonderful unity. Different national backgrounds, yet wonderful unity, family, brotherhood, sisterhood, because of the Lord Jesus. So we all have that sense of national memory and consciousness of the conflict that has shaped the nations in our background. So remembrance is almost like a universal language of humanity. 
whether the people we're remembering were the pioneers or the politicians, the military or the independence movements. Many people have suffered for our today and we will remember them. But of course, in this country, with the connection with the Royal British Legion and uh, the role of the military within our country, there is a military aspect to today. So to those who have served our country to protect our freedom, we thank you. We thank you. To the families who've suffered as their loved ones have gone to serve, sometimes not returning, we thank you. There's this unspoken cost of service often borne by the, uh, the spouses and the children of those who go to serve. Remembrance can also be a difficult notion for those who've suffered in war as civilians. And all over the world there are civilian populations scarred by the effects of war that they themselves weren't even involved with. My own family were caught up in uh, a civil war in West Africa and that has become part of the narrative of our family. The, the time that two mums and several children had to escape cross-country in an old Renault 4 and uh, keep on driving until they reached a state where we would be safe. And I was three at the time, but mum heard that the rebels were coming to our village and so we had to drop everything and leave. And even these so many years later, uh, if you ask her to retell the story of what happened, you can still see it in her eyes. Remembrance Day can also be quite a difficult notion for those of us who don't want conflict at all. Now, there's a really good theological basis for people who support total pacifism, total disarmament. Now, that's not something that I hold myself, but I do hold that underlying desire for lasting and complete peace. So this day isn't like a celebration of military in that sense. It's certainly not a way to promote nationalism. What we're remembering is the service and the suffering of the people who've gone before. And we pray that it never, ever has to happen again. And those who've witnessed it firsthand, like our veterans, they pray the hardest for peace in the future because they know what it looks like. But today, as we reflect, where do we stand as Christians while British-made bombs are, are, are falling on civilians in Yemen? Where, where do we stand as Christians while terrorism remains a very real threat to our domestic peace? How do we balance this feeling of a need for security with a, with a desire for peace and also wanting to protect innocent people. It throws up all sorts of questions and emotions, doesn't it? For many of us, this day is intensely personal as well. When we remember or when we're asked to remember, we remember a person or people. For me, it is Private Gwilym David Griffiths of the 13th Parachute Battalion, South Lancashire Regiment. He was my great uncle. On the 3rd of April 1945, just four weeks before the end of the Second World War, from the log of the day of his battalion, 0200 hours, advance resumed with 12th power leading. 0430, leading troops met strong resistance and this unit received orders to lie up until 0830 hours, by which time the enemy resistance was to be liquidated by 12th power battalion. Gwillem was killed in action at 445, 
during that fight, aged 23. And that's my great uncle, that's my grandfather's brother. And my mum's first name is Gwilliam, although she's known as Marion, and my name is David. So the firstborn in my grandfather's line for two generations bear the name of my great uncle. We will remember them. So today in Shrewsbury, I bring my two children to exercise our religious freedom in our open democracy. And as a family, we will remember him. He was the cost that our family paid. Many others here will have similar stories of the relatives that you never met, the empty seats at the family function. So war and the bravery shown in war makes absolute heroes out of ordinary people. Ordinary people like you or I. Now there's one type of person in a wartime environment that has always amazed me. And that is the chaplains. The Christians who go with the soldiers themselves unarmed. Providing care, support and in many cases medical care. Personally, I find it a struggle to imagine ever volunteering to go to war, let, let alone to volunteer to go to war without a gun, to be unarmed. But one such person was the Reverend Theodore Bailey Hardy, who at the time of the First World War breaking out was aged 51 and a vicar in the Lake District. He'd recently lost his wife to illness and he volunteered to go, but he was refused on grounds of age. By 1916, his opportunity came to go and he was sent with the 8th Battalion of the Lincolnshire Regiment. He won medals for bravery and became one of the most decorated non-combatants in British military history, culminating in him winning the Victoria Cross, the highest honour for bravery you can get. A 54-year-old vicar won the Victoria Cross. The London Gazette reported his, his acts of valour. This is from a newspaper article at the time. For most conspicuous bravery and devotion to duty on many occasions, although over 50 years of age, he has, by his fearlessness, devotion to men of his battalion, and quiet, unobtrusive manner, won the respect and admiration of the whole division. His marvellous energy and endurance would be remarkable even in a very much younger man. And his valour and emotion are exemplified in the following incidents. And then the article goes on to describe multiple times where he goes out into shelling or machine gun fire to rescue wounded soldiers. And then the paper reports, on the third occasion, he displayed the greatest devotion to duty when our infantry had a successful attack after a su su successful attack, were gradually forced back to their starting trench. After it was believed that all our men had withdrawn from the wood, Chaplain Hardy came out of it, the last man, and on reaching an advance post, asked the men to help him to get in a wounded man. Accompanied by a sergeant, he made his way to the spot where the man lay, within ten yards of a pillbox which had been captured in the morning, but was subsequently recaptured and occupied by the enemy. The wounded man was too weak to stand, but between them, the chaplain and the sergeant eventually succeeded in getting him to our lines. The last one out of the wood was the chaplain, but he still wanted to go back and to rescue the wounded soldier. This picture is a World War I 
pillbox that they'd captured in the morning, but was now under the control of enemy soldiers who had guns. And he chose to go unarmed within 10 feet of something like that to rescue a wounded soldier. I submit to you that that is what brave looks like. Theodore Hardy, the 54-year-old Christian minister who won a Victoria Cross. Through doing that, he won the hearts of his battalion and he represented Christ even under the most dire circumstances and made national news in this country because of it. Just four months later, he was killed in action while tending to the wounded and he's buried in Normandy alongside all the thousands of others. He didn't make it back. So remembrance is international, remembrance is national, remembrance is personal, and remembrance makes heroes of ordinary people. Today, many of us are wearing the poppy. Poppies are an odd sort of flower in some way as they grow in disturbed ground. Their seeds fall to the ground and can be dormant for years, but once the soil is turned over, somehow they start to grow. This often happens during ploughing, but by the time of mechanised warfare, we'd find other ways of churning the soil. And in the fields of Belgium, half a million people lost their lives and the poppies grew. The red covering the fields, a stark reminder of the sacrifice that had caused their suffering. Beauty growing out of suffering, symbolised by the poppy. So how do we respond to this multitude of emotions and different threads and different questions that today generates? My my suggestion and my encouragement is that we don't let those memories or those emotions define today, but let's look to Scripture to give us the steer and the foundation that we need to move forward. And the three points I really want to make clearly are that the Christian faith has, at its heart, remembrance. The Christian faith is very very much built on the notion of sacrifice. And the Christian faith seeks to see a kingdom come where there will be no more pain, no more injustice, no more invasion, and no more war. Only peace. A kingdom ruled by the Prince of Peace. The Apostle Paul wrote an important letter to the church in the Greek city of Corinth. Corinth was a large trading city and the largest city in Greece at the time. And with the wealth and the passing people in a port city, there was a variety of different cultures, different religions, and all sorts of the, uh, the industries that you would expect in a port city. Should we put it like that? These influences had impacted the church, and so Paul writes them this letter. And as he's writing to them, he's basically talking to them again and again and again as to how in their circumstances, how in their situation, what about the Lord Jesus? What about Jesus? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pointing them to Jesus Again and again, no matter what they're thinking, no matter what they're feeling, no matter what they're doing, no matter what needs ironing out in the church, his, 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 his go-to is, well, what about the Lord Jesus? Let's look to Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do this morning with all the questions of remembrance still hanging in our minds.
1 Corinthians 11 from verse 23, very famous verses. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Those of us with a church background will have heard these verses so many times expressed as we share communion together. But there are two acts of remembrance happening in this passage. First, Paul is remembering what he's received that he's passing on. And what he's passing on is the Lord Jesus instructing them to regularly remember his sacrifice. Remembrance and sacrifice is right at the heart of the spread of the Christian message. Remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And to our knowledge, there were no poppies on the hill just outside Jerusalem where Jesus died, but there was ultimate sacrifice. And we heard so much about that in Terry's talk a couple of weeks ago. The sinless saviour taking upon himself the punishment that humanity deserved in order to restore us into relationship with his loving father in heaven. And we heard from Martin before that about the Lord Jesus sacrificing the glory of heaven for a life of hardship here on earth and then sacrificing his life itself. So the idea of remembrance is in the heart of the good news of Jesus and the spread of that good news. This idea that we remember, this idea that we pass down through the generations. The remembrance of the ultimate sacrifice. Telling people of his suffering, telling people of his sacrifice, but ultimately telling people of his great victory. In our act of remembrance today, for many of us, we will have thought of and considered in our mind's eye the rows upon rows of graves across northern Europe. But the sacrifice of Jesus isn't limited to a grave or a gravestone. Because Paul goes on in chapter 15 to explain what also needs to be remembered, what also needs to be passed on from generation to generation. This is chapter 15 and from verse 3. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So again, what he has received, he's passing on. He is remembering in order that they too can remember. He's actually writing it down as well, so future generations can remember. The people who saw Jesus alive after he died are are passing on what they've seen and heard. They're giving account of what they've seen and heard of Jesus. That strikes up a bit of a challenge to me today in the freedom that we have in this country. Am I truly passing on what I've witnessed 
of Jesus. But compared to all we've thought about today, this sacrifice is a very major difference. For the story finishes not with death, but with life. The victory being remembered here is not a victory of a military or political sort, but a victory over death itself. And here are the witnesses, named living people, those who saw him. Paul is passing it on. He's remembering it as of first importance. As the most important thing. The remembrance that we've done today is really, really important. The prayers that we pray today have been incredibly important. The peace that we seek for our world in this generation is vitally important. But it's not of first importance. Of first importance in the whole story is that the Lord Jesus is alive. Of first importance is a greater victory far beyond anything any army or empire has managed in history. Nothing will ever match what Jesus has done and what he has achieved. And this gives us great hope. A great hope for now and also a great hope for the future. We pray for peace, but the bitter truth is, in every generation, humanity seems to be inventing even more complicated ways of causing suffering to one another. As our technology has advanced, so has the numbers of ways that we can cause harm. The true peace we seek for our world is not found in the debating chambers of the United Nations or in legal agreements and alliances between states and it's not found in advanced weaponry. The true peace we seek, all of this suffering and us realising that this isn't how it was supposed to be, that leads us to a time in the future when our true hero the Lord Jesus is going to come and bring true and everlasting peace. And in his letter to Corinth, Paul's already mentioned the kingdom of God a couple of times. In chapter 4, he says the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. In chapter 6, he basically encourages them to sort themselves out because the kingdom of God is coming. And then later on in chapter 15, past the verses we've just read, he says this from verse 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Dominion, authority and power is at the heart of all war. It's at the heart of all conflict. Spiritual forces outplay in our world and destruction happens. And yet we're promised that the Lord Jesus will overcome it all. And the greatest enemy of humanity is not each other. It's not people from another country. It's not a different political system. That's not the overarching enemy of humanity. The, the, the greatest enemy of humanity is death itself. You might survive the war, you might even win the war, but you will still die. Yet even death itself can't escape the victory of our Lord Jesus. The last enemy 
death itself will be destroyed. And a new kingdom is coming where there will be no war, no suffering, no fighting, no misunderstanding. That is wonderful bedrock of foundational truth for Christians on this most difficult of days. But more than that, we get to give people in this life something of a glimpse of of that kingdom through the way that we live in the here and the now. Through the bravery that we show, through the unity that we choose, through the sacrifice that we make. By being the type of Christian who's willing to run back into the woods to pick up the wounded. Are you willing willing to run back into the woods of life to pick up the wounded, even under enemy fire? We have an opportunity to bring some of the hope, the peace, the justice of the future into today for people by being peacekeepers and peacemakers in a hurting and a fractured world and by passing on hope in remembrance through giving account of what we've experienced of Jesus. So to finish up, we will remember the sacrifice of those who've gone before. All of them. We will remember them. But how much more will we remember Christ? How much more will we we remember his sacrifice? And will we tell his story as of first importance? I'd love to invite the musicians to come forward. I'm going to pray shortly and then we're going to conclude. I thought as we were singing the song Ascribe Greatness this morning, it really felt there was something of our heart towards God and God's heart towards us in it. I wonder if we could just put the, put the, uh, the chorus up. If we could go for the next one. That's not it, I don't think. You nearly caught me out. That's it. So we've just described God as our rock, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Good and upright is he. That's hope for those who've suffered in conflict. It's hope for the people in wartime situations now. And it's hope for us as we look to the future and we see the changes in our world and the changes in government and the the different movements and we wonder what our future will be like. There is a sure foundation. There is a rock that we can put our hope and our faith in because now he's promised us the grace and peace to continue and in the future he's coming back to fix it. And when he does, there will be peace for eternity that we will enjoy with him. I'd love to pray. Father, we want to thank you for sending the Lord Jesus as the ultimate act of sacrifice. Lord, we want to remember him 
his death and his resurrection as of first importance. But Lord, our our hearts and our emotions are led in all sorts of different directions this morning as we think about the situations in our national background, the situations in our personal background, the experiences that sometimes we've had ourselves. And I want to pray, Holy Spirit, the Comforter, however people are feeling today, however people are responding today, would you come in your power and bring comfort and a sense of deeper security and foundation because of the power that raised Jesus from the dead being outworked in our lives. And Lord, we thank you that we can put our trust in you for the future. We thank you that we can ask you to intervene into the circumstances of the day. But ultimately, Lord, we pray that whatever we face, we thank you that our future with you is secure. Our hope in you is secure. That we're not destined to uh, um, have our futures defined by the decisions of governments or the, the, the choices of people. But actually our future is defined by the victory of the Lord Jesus. And our eternity is secure with you. And that you're coming back and you're going to make it all right. And this suffering that we see today and we think to ourselves, this isn't right. Lord Jesus, that you agree with us. And that's why you're coming to fix it. And this bit in our being that just cries out for help. Lord Jesus, you've already come and answered that prayer through your death and resurrection. And that leads us once more to worship, Lord. Because circumstances may not change for now. But our entire hope and our future has changed forever because of you. And we love you. And we want to open our hearts to you. Amen. Could you stand together?